Question. Have you ever been a part of a group or part of a team where basically one person carried everybody else? So think athletics, think maybe a work project or a school project. Um, I was just recently in a golf scramble and I am not a good golfer. I enjoy golfing, I am terrible at golfing. However, thankfully, Justin Santa over here is not bad at golfing. In fact, he's a scratch golfer. And so he was a part of our team and I actually had hope that we would do well because he is a good golfer, not because of me. When I was a freshman uh, in baseball, when I was a freshman, I was playing baseball and there was a guy on our team who was this incredible pitcher. His name is Ryan Boris. And I mean, we would, we would have these games and like three, four, five MLB scouts would show up and they would all be sitting behind home plate with their, with their radar guns and they're just trying to see how fast can this guy throw the ball and this guy could bring gas. I mean, this guy, he could pump the ball. And we knew, I mean, we had a decent team, but we knew that if Ryan was on the mound, we had a ton of confidence. We felt like we could beat anybody if Ryan was on the mound. When you consider your standing with God, what gives you great confidence? Is it because you grew up in church? Is it because you pray every so often? Is it because you tithe? You give your 10%? Is it because you say nice things about God? Is it because you're a, quote, good person, at least compared to everyone else? What gives you confidence before God? I would submit to you that as we look at today's text, we're going to see that God's people are delivered from bondage because of God alone, not anything else. God's people are delivered from bondage because of God alone, not anything else. Therefore, our confidence should rest in him alone. So deliverance from bondage is entirely because of God, not because of anything that, that we do or muster up. Therefore, our confidence should not be in ourselves or in anybody else or anything that we've done, but it should be in God alone. Now, if you're joining us, this is the third sermon in our series in Exodus. And Exodus is a book that was written by Moses. It's the second book of what's called the Pentateuch, which is the fancy name for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, we went over some of the background in Genesis, so we're not going to spend a ton of time going over that. But just to give you the, the end, the last snapshot, Genesis ended with God's people, Israel, being delivered from famine. There's a great famine. Joseph finds his way to Egypt, and then he allows uh, his family to come to Egypt where there's food, where there's land, where there's protection. That was the end of Genesis. Now, roughly 400 years have passed since that. And Israel has multiplied greatly. They've gone from a little over 70 people to now thousands, perhaps millions. And Pharaoh was intimidated by how much they had grown. And so what he did was he created this law that was essentially the genocide of all Hebrew newborn male children. So we read, Buzz took us through uh, chapter 2 last week, so helpfully, and we, he pointed out that Moses was born during that time. And Moses, his mom, rather than throwing him into the Nile to be, to be killed or to perhaps be eaten by alligators, she put him in a basket. And she floated him down 
the Nile, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses was a Hebrew who should have been killed, but he wasn't. But he is a Hebrew who grew up as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household. And then one day he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he, so he intercedes and he ends up killing that Egyptian. He thought nobody saw it, but word got out that it actually took place. And so the next day he ends up fleeing to the wilderness. And all the while, while he's in the wilderness, God's people continue to suffer. They continue to be in bondage. Pharaoh continues to make their life really difficult. And then chapter 2 ends with Israel crying out. They're asking God for help. And it ends with these beautiful words. If you look at Exodus 2, verses 24 and 25, we see, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The theme of the book of Exodus is God's faithful deliverance. Or to put it even more precisely, put it even more fine-tuned, it's God making his name known. It's him making himself known to Israel, to Egypt, and even to the surrounding nations. We see, as we go through this book, we'll see God continuously making himself known. And so today we are looking at Exodus chapter 3. We're going all the way through chapter 4, verse 18. I know that's a lot of ground to cover, but I think we're going to be just fine. We're going to be able to handle that. So if you would, turn with me to Exodus 3. You'll see that it's toward the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, and then... Look for that big number three, and that's going to be where we are. If you're using one of the Blue Provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 46. Page 46 of one of the Blue Provided Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, then that, one, that blue Bible right there, that's yours. That's our gift uh, to you. So let's read Exodus 3, and we're going to read the first 10 verses to start off. This is God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me. 
and I, have seen, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. As we look at this text, I think we're going to see two primary points uh, from the text. We see the overarching point, that deliverance is based off of God alone, not us, so therefore we should place our confidence in him. But I think this text, this narrative, is broken down into two main chunks. The first one, right there, verses 1 through 10. And so if you're looking in your bulletin, you're going to see uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, God calls Moses. That's the first point in your bulletin. God calls Moses. The second one is the remainder of the chapter, where God assures Moses. So we see God calling Moses, and then we see God assuring Moses. So let's look at that first one, God calls Moses. So in verse 1 there, we see right off the bat that Moses was keeping the flock. He was shepherding. And so as Buzz mentioned last week, Moses was 80 years old when God first appeared to him. We see that in Acts 7. So his first 40 years, I mean, his, his life is essentially divided into two sections of 40 right now. We'll see that his life is actually divided into three sections of 40, but so far he's 80, so there's only two sections. The first section, first 40 years, are him in Egypt. He's in Pharaoh's household. He's in a position of power. And in the next 40 years are almost the exact opposite. He is no longer uh, considered an Egyptian, at least not in good standing. He's in the wilderness, in a place called Midian, and he's been a shepherd. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. This isn't just a summer gig. He's gone from royalty to shepherding. And that was, to go, to go from that to shepherding is actually especially low for somebody who was previously living as an Egyptian. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 46 in verse 34 says that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so Moses goes from this place of royalty, living life as an Egyptian, to the wilderness, living life as a shepherd, which is an abomination to the Egyptians. You can see the stark contrast in his life from the first 40 years to the last 40 years. But then, something for us to see with these middle 40 years is that Moses was doing something that to the rest of the world would seem entirely unremarkable. Yet, God was preparing him for his last 40 years. So first 40 years in Egypt, the next 40 years he's shepherding, and then Moses lives to be 120, so he's got a third set of 40 years where he is shepherding God's people. He's shepherding them out of Egypt and into the presence of God. So God was preparing him. You would think that age, age 40 to 80 is probably like that mid-lifespan where you're doing the most significant stuff in your life. And Moses was just in a field making sure that sheep had food and water. He went from royalty to that. Yet God was using that to prepare him for his next task of shepherding his people out of Egypt. But then in verse 2, what we see is God appearing now to Moses. So he's been doing this for 40 years out in the wilderness. And now, one day as Moses is just doing his thing, shepherding shepherding the sheep there, God appears to him in verse 2. And John Frame, theologian, he comments on this. And he says something interesting. He says, we learn about this meeting between Moses and God in Exodus 3. And I think that passage is the real beginning of the biblical doctrine of God, 
We read about God in Genesis, but the author of Genesis met God in Exodus 3. And so Moses, who authored Genesis, who wrote that, he begins his understanding of who God is right here in this passage in Exodus 3. And so God calls him out of this burning bush, and Moses replies, here I am. So God calls him, Moses says, here I am. Now there's a pattern that we're going to see throughout Scripture. We saw it in, in Genesis 22 with Abraham, where God said, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham responded, here I am. Then we see it in Jacob in Genesis 46, where God spoke to, to Jacob in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob responded, here I am. And then we see in 1 Samuel, where God calls Samuel three times, and three times he goes to Eli and says, here I am, here I am, here I am. He realizes that's God calling him. And then in Isaiah, chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord in his throne, a voice calls out. It says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And so there's a pattern going on here where God calls out, and then the prophet that he's calling responds by saying, here I am. And so when we see this with Moses, it should kind of trigger our minds to know that something significant is happening right here. God appears, he calls Moses' name, Moses responds with, here I am, and that should clue us in that this is an important moment. But there's also some significance to the fact that it was a burning bush, right? As we go throughout the scripture, we also see that God is associated oftentimes with fire. So we see in Genesis 15, there's a smoking pot and a flaming torch. So God makes a, a covenant. And then in Exodus 13, we see a pillar of fire coming down, protecting God's people and leading them. And then we see in Exodus 19, where God descends on Mount Sinai in fire. In fact, Deuteronomy 4 just flat out says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. The throne in Daniel 7 is described as fiery flames. We're told that Jesus has eyes like fire. We see that in Revelation. And then we see fire being descriptive of God's judgment. See it with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, with Ahaziah's men in 2 Kings 1, and with the eternal judgment with the lake of fire in Revelation 20. Fire, friends, fire purifies. And so when we see God being represented as fire, this should clue us into thinking that is pure. That is holy. There is no blemish of sin in that thing. God even tells Moses that he's standing on holy ground. Where that burning bush is, it's on that ground, and God says, you are standing on holy ground. This is purified ground. And Moses is so overcome with God's purity, with his holiness, that he hides his face in fear of looking at God, looking at that, that burning bush. And so when we see the burning bush, we should be reminded of God's holiness and God's purity. And this holy and pure God tells Moses in verses 7 through 10 that he's aware of his people's suffering. We see six verbs just in verses 7 and 8. If you look there, you see, I have surely seen, I have heard, I know, I have come down to deliver, and I've come down to bring them up. And so God doesn't just know, this holy and pure God doesn't just know about the suffering. He's doing something about it. There are six things that he lists right there that he's doing about it. 
reminds us what we just talked about at the end of Exodus chapter 2. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. But he didn't just know. He did something. He's in the process of doing something. And in his love, he's going to provide a deliverer. And that deliverer, here in this passage, is now coming face to face with God. So God appears to Moses, calls him as his chosen instrument to deliver his people from their bondage. Look, in his love, and we should be extremely grateful for this, in his love, God is unwilling to leave his people in their suffering. He does something about it. And so, friends, don't overlook where God has you right now. It may be a great season. It may feel like a boring season where you're in the wilderness just doing something completely unremarkable. It may be a difficult season. Whatever it is, don't overlook where God has you right now because he is using that in your life. If you are a Christian, he is using that for your good. Christian, wherever God has placed you, be faithful. You may not be where you want to be in life. You may wish you were in a different phase. In fact, we're always kind of, mentioned this before, we're always kind of wishing for that next phase, that next thing. Friends, be faithful where God has placed you. Moses probably wasn't in the stage that he wanted to be in. He was in the wilderness after being a part of the royal household in Egypt. Probably was often reminded about how great it was to not have to work for his food and just ask for a loaf of bread and he could get it. But God may be using this season of your life to prepare you for the next in the same way that he was doing that with Moses. And if you are not a Christian, I just want to submit this to you. First off, thank you for being here. We're thrilled that you're here. We hope that you continue to come back and continue to, to listen to God's word and, and ask any questions that you may have. But friend, don't think that you're unacceptable to God because of what you've done or because of how long you've rejected him. Moses was 80 when he met God. And he lived to be 120. So literally two-thirds of his life, he's not serving the God of Israel. Don't think that you've rejected God too long to where it's too late for you. Also, don't think that you've done too many wrong things. Moses, when he came to God, he had already killed a man. Don't think that you are not acceptable to God because of your past or because of how long you have rejected him. And all, all of us in here, don't buy into the lie that God is indifferent to suffering. He sees suffering. We saw it right here. He sees the suffering of his people, and God knew. Friends, he sees the suffering even today. The fires in Maui, the mudslides in Southern California, the war in Ukraine, school shootings, aborted babies, failing marriages, bankrupt families, cancer diagnosis. He sees all the suffering. And he responds by doing something. He's come down. We see him telling Moses he's going to come down and he's going to deliver. And he's going to bring this people up to a new land. Friends, God has done that in his son. He has come down to deliver his people out of the hands of their oppression. To bring them up to the land that he's prepared for them. But second, we see God assures Moses so those first 10 verses, God is, is calling Moses. He's introducing himself to Moses, and he's calling him to be this deliverer for his people. Now, the rest of the time, 
Moses is offering up all kinds of objections as to why he shouldn't be the guy. Tony Merida, in fact, points out five objections that Moses gives for not obeying God's command. So we're just going to walk through each of these five. So objection number one that Moses provides are credentials. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And so look, for the last 40 years, Moses has been a shepherd in the wilderness. And he, he, he left Egypt on pretty bad terms, if we're honest. Now he's called to go tell the most powerful man in the world, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, to let his workforce go. Moses is not super confident that he has the credentials to do that. But notice God's response here. God doesn't deny Moses' lack of credentials. But he responds by saying, I will be with you. But I will be with you. So he, he, what he's doing is he's taking Moses' eyes off of Moses and redirecting them to God. Moses does, in fact, lack the credentials to go before the most powerful man in the world. He absolutely does. But you know who doesn't? God. God says, I will be with you. I will go with you. God, friends, is working to make his name known, not Moses' name. So it would make sense that God would take somebody who lacks the obvious credentials to have this conversation with the most powerful man in the world. If he used the most eloquent man, if he used the strongest man, then if things go well, then people would say, wow, that, that man, it's a sure good thing that, that we had him talking for us. But there's nothing terribly remarkable about Moses. He lacks the credentials. And so when things begin to go Israel's way, guess who's going to get the glory? Not Moses. In fact, this is, this is the, the pattern that God has used all throughout Scripture, all throughout the, the history of redemption. If you look at 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, but in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, in verse 26, we see Paul making this argument to the Christians at the Corinthian church. He says, look, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God tells Moses, look, you don't have the credentials. That's exactly, that's exactly the point. But then Moses offers another objection. Objection number two. He offers up that he doesn't have the content. He says in verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Look, God, okay, sure, I don't have the credentials, but what am I going to say to them when I go there? What content am I going to bring before them? Which is, which is honestly a valid concern. I mean, Moses, has, he lived among the Egyptians for 40 years, and so he likely worshipped Egyptian gods, all these false gods. He did not worship the God of Israel. He's meeting him for the first time here in Exodus 3. 
And so when he goes to Israel and tells them, hey, here's the plan, they're probably going to be a little suspicious that you never really worshipped this God, and you, in fact, we saw you for 40 years worshipping all these other false gods. However, God does provide Moses with the content. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. He's given the content here. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Look, friends, what's happening in these two verses is incredibly important. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, points out, he says, it is plausible, it's a very real possibility here, it's plausible that the entire Exodus narrative is an exposition of the name mentioned here. God gives his name. I am who I am. And if if you're just reading that, you recognize that that's pretty vague. And I think it's intentionally vague because names have meaning. And there's really no adequate way to describe God. It's not sufficient to say, hey, God's as loving as a parent or God's as strong as an ox or God's as big as Jupiter. None of those things adequately describe God. The the phrase there, I am who I am, essentially means I am the self-existent one. I exist. I am who I am. I'm dependent on nothing else and no one else. And that phrase, I am who I am, is abbreviated throughout the rest of Scripture as YHWH, which is where we get the name Yahweh. And when you see in the Old Testament or throughout the rest of Scripture uh, the word Lord in little caps, that's that name right there, Yahweh. So you could read that as Lord or you could just read it as Yahweh, his personal name. And so God says that this name, Yahweh, that his name will be remembered forever. And he doesn't just give Moses his name. He also gives Moses the play-by-play. Tells him what's, how this is going to go down. So he says in verse 16 that Moses gathers Israel's leaders, and he's going to tell them that, that God sees their affliction. In verse 17, he says that God will deliver them out of Egypt. He's letting them know that they're not only going to be delivered, but they're going to be brought into their own land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And that phrase, milk and honey, means that it's a land that's going to have plenty of lush pasture lands. What makes milk? Goats. And so he's saying that there's going to be plenty of pasture land for livestock to produce milk. This land's going to be flowing with milk. And then what produces honey? Bees. And in that that place in the world, bees would predominantly live in thick forests. And so essentially what God is saying is that this place is going to be just a lush land that's not, that's not given to flooding, that's not given to drought, a place where you will always have food. But despite, um, despite that, Moses still has a difficult time accepting that this is going to, to work. And so God gave him the play-by-play. He said, milk and honey... He said that the Israelite leaders, they're even going to listen to you. But he says, hey, look, Pharaoh won't listen to you. But he says, look, I'm, I'm going to convince him. 
Pharaoh will be convinced. I'm going to send these, these wonders and these signs, and he will, in fact, be convinced. And you know what, Moses? They're going to be so convinced to let you go that they're essentially going to pay you to leave. See that there in verse 21 22. But despite those assurances, Moses has a third objection. He doesn't think he's going to be convincing enough. So he's worried about credentials. He's worried about content. Now he's worried about convincing. So in chapter 4, in that first verse there, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So God just told Moses that he's going to take care of the convincing part, right? And Moses is like, Yeah, they're just still not going to believe me. Sorry. But here's the thing. Moses is still looking at himself rather than God. Look at that, look at that first verse there. They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Moses is still fixated on himself rather than on God. So God, in his, in his kindness, in his grace, and in his mercy toward Moses, he gives him these signs. He says, look, here, here are three signs to help you be more convincing. It says that his staff will turn into a snake when he throws it on the ground. That his hand will turn leprous when he puts it in his cloak, and then he pulls it out. It's leprous, puts it back in, and it's not leprous. Leprous is just a skin disease. Um, and then gives him a third sign of taking water from the Nile and putting it on the ground and it becoming blood. Now, friends, here's something we need to see with those signs, is that each of those signs points to God's authority over that particular thing. So, for instance, the snake shows, God, shows Yahweh's authority over evil. Remember, the whole book of Exodus is expounding on that Genesis 3 uh, passage where God says that there'll be enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, has a serpent right there on the middle of his crown, symbolizing that he is representative of the seed of the serpent and God's people being the seed of the woman. And Exodus is a clashing, an enmity of those two seeds. And God says, I have authority over the seed of the serpent. I have authority over evil. Throw your staff down, and it will turn into a serpent, and then pick it back up, and it will turn back into the staff. It's emphasizing Yahweh's authority over evil. But then the leprous hand emphasizes Yahweh's authority over disease, and then the water to blood represents Yahweh's authority over nature. And look, God's authority is going to be further developed as we continue to go through the book of Exodus and we see these ten plagues that are getting ready to be rolled out. But despite God's authority and of those, giving him those signs, Moses still offers another objection. Objection number four. And this one's about communication. So Moses said to the Lord, this is in verse 10, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So again, Moses is focusing on himself. It still hasn't quite gotten through to Moses that he's not to be looking at himself, he's to be looking at Yahweh. He says, I am not a good communicator. But God reminds him that this mission depends on God, not Moses. He says, I, I, God, will be with your mouth, Moses. Start looking at me. God's presence, not Moses' ability, 
is what matters. And then we get to his fifth objection. This is really kind of the, the heart of the matter. He says, oh, Lord, please send someone else. You can tell he's just exasperated. He's offered these four other objections, and God keeps having a response for him, like, hey, I'm going to be with you. Stop looking at yourself. I'm going to be with you. I'll be with your mouth. You're, don't worry. You're going to be able to say what, what I want you to say. No, I got you. And Moses just eventually just exasperates. God, please just send somebody else. I'm not your guy. And God, his anger is kindled. And, and you, I mean, it's, it's difficult to blame Moses. He's not going to be liked. It's uncomfortable. It'll cost him. It's dangerous. I mean, think about it. He's going to the leader of, of the world, essentially. And he's a lowly shepherd. Egyptians view shepherds as abominable. They don't like them. They're an abomination. And this previous Egyptian, who killed an Egyptian and then fled before justice could be done, is now coming back as a shepherd to tell, the Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh that you need to let your workforce go. You need to let all of God's people go. Let Israel go. This is a dangerous calling. And Moses knows it, and he feels it. And so after all those objections, and God still answers, I, I'm going to be with you. You don't need to worry about it. I, I, I've got you. Moses just says, just send somebody else. Please, send somebody else. And so how does God respond? Well, his anger is kindled. But then just as quickly as it's kindled, he shows grace. And he shows mercy. And he offers him Aaron. He says, look, Aaron, your brother, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You'll speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and we'll teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. doesn't mean that Moses was God. It essentially means that God's going to communicate to Moses. Moses is going to communicate to Aaron, and then Aaron will communicate to the people. Look, friends, it's good to do ministry with others. We see that right here. God calls Moses, and he is terrified to go and do this. It's a dangerous calling. Yet God gives him someone else to go with him. And look, we have one another. It's good to do ministry with one another. Everyone who joins the body of Christ spiritually through faith is called to join the body of Christ physically, the local church. And so there are those for you to do ministry with. So you don't have to walk alone. In fact, a lone ranger Christian is just not a biblical Christian. Christianity, to continue with the sports illustrations from earlier, Christianity is more like football than it is golf. Golf is just you and the golf course. Football, there are 22 guys all doing their job, trying to accomplish a purpose, working together. Christianity is more like that, where you're adopted into a family. You're brought together to do ministry with one another, not to be on an island. And then, after all that back and forth, look at this. Moses finally obeys God. Look at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So he returns to his father-in-law after having this back and forth with God. He's finally convinced, I need to do this. And so he goes to his father-in-law, asks for permission, because he's, I mean, he's overseeing 
all these flocks, right? He needs to, and he married Jethro's daughter. And so he goes to him and asks for permission to, to go back to Egypt to obey what God has commanded him. And Jethro says, go in peace. It took convincing. But Moses finally realized that no matter what excuse or no matter what objection he gives God, God is going, going excuse me, to use him. Why? Because it's not about Moses' ability. It's about God's ability and God's will being accomplished. So friends, when we focus our attention on ourselves, we realize just how insufficient we are. But when we look to God, we realize how sufficient he is. And here's the the great thing, as we look at God providing his name. In verse 14, he says, I am who I am. He says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Do me a favor and turn over to John, the book of John. It's in the New Testament. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Throughout the book of John, we see seven I am statements from Jesus. I'm the bread of life, I'm the door, I'm the way. But we see in John chapter 8, Jesus making a profound statement. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right here in John 8, Jesus is making the profound statement that he, in fact, is I am. He is God. He was around before Abraham. And so when Moses interacts with this burning bush, he interacts with God and hears that God is I am, and in the New Testament we see Jesus saying, I am, we recognize that Jesus is, in fact, God. And Jesus is the clearest example of God coming down to deliver his people. He told Moses that he was going to come down, that he's seen their oppression and their suffering. He's going to deliver them from their oppression to a new lush land. Jesus, friends, comes down. God has descended. He has sent his son to deliver his people from the oppression of sin so that all who would call on him would enjoy the eternal freedom found in Christ. Just as it was then, it's through I am that we are invited to enjoy forever the lush new heavens and new earth where sin is no more. So friends, your confidence with God. So I asked that question at the beginning. What makes you confident before God? Your confidence with God can't be based on you. It cannot be based on you. You lack the credentials. You lack the ability. It must be based on Christ. You may not have necessary credentials or content or communication ability or convincing ability or commitment But look at me. Jesus does. Jesus is making the claim that he is the great I am. Jesus has the credentials. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's provided the content. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit who does the convincing. We're called to proclaim the word and trust the Holy Spirit will convince. 
Jesus is the word made flesh. See that in John 1. That God has most clearly communicated who he is and what his plan is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is fully committed to his people. Moses recognized that the, Egyptian, or the Israelites were his people. but He wasn't fully committed to them. So please send somebody else. Jesus, the Son of God, is fully committed to his people, so much so that he went to the cross to pay the penalty that his people should have paid. Wages of sin is death. Jesus went to a cross to die the death that we should have died. And he lived that perfectly and holy, righteous life that we should have lived. And he offers to, to swap places with us, for him to enter our oppression so that we may enjoy his freedom. What can wash away my sin? Not my abilities. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, God's people are delivered from their bondage because of God alone, not anything else. Therefore, our confidence should rest in him alone. Moses continually was looking at himself. God was calling Moses to deliver his people, and Moses kept looking at himself. I'm not sure this can be done. I'm not, I don't have the credentials. I don't have the ability to convince or communicate clearly. Moses kept looking at himself. God said, no, no, no. Stop looking at yourself. Trust me. I will be with you. I will deliver. Because I am with you, you will be able to deliver these people through me, not because of you, Moses. So if you're not a Christian in the room, freedom from sin's bondage is not accomplished by you being a good person. It's not accomplished by you trying a little harder. It's accomplished by Christ alone. And then it's given to you. It's imputed to you through faith alone. Christian, Moses knew what he was called to do. And he offered objection after objection after objection. What objections have you been holding on to that have been keeping you from being obedient? Is it credentials or content? Maybe you don't know what to say. Maybe you don't feel trained enough. Maybe you don't feel like you're convincing enough. Maybe you're just like, you know what? In my head, I know what the right things to say, but I just, I just can't get it out of my mouth when I'm in those conversations. I'm not an eloquent speaker. Maybe it's just commitment. Maybe it's just a lack of love for neighbors. I encourage you, take your eyes off yourself. Place your confidence in Christ. Recognize the objections that you've been holding on to. Repent of them and walk in obedience. Fix your confidence in Christ, the one who willingly took your bondage, your bondage under the curse, so that you may enjoy his freedom. He paid your penalty, he died your death, and he rose victoriously on the third day, securing deliverance for all who call on his name. And now, friends, that deliverance is offered to you. Trust him wholly. Trust him entirely for that deliverance, not yourself. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful gift of the gospel that we can be delivered from the punishment of sin, from your wrath that we deserve. Thank you, Jesus, for taking that penalty for your people. We pray 
that if there are those here who have not embraced that message, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would receive that, that they would call on the name of Christ in faith, that they would trust him entirely, not themselves. They would trust Christ to take away their sin and to give them the holiness and righteousness they need to be made right with you, a holy and pure God. Thank you for offering this freely through your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.